Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's episode of History Hack. Uh, we're going to do something you've heard of this time, but we're not going to do it in the way that everybody always does it because we're bored of it, aren't we, Charlie? So bored. Bored. <laughs> so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take some a little bit of a different approach here. Um, we're joined by Amanda Harvey Purse, who's a historian and a researcher who specialises in both the Tudors and Victorian crimes, which that does sound rather intriguing. She's a member of the Royal Historical Society and the founder of Tudor Secrets and Myths. And she's here today to talk to Alex and I about her new book, The Bolins, From the Tudors to the Windsors. Hello, Amanda. Hello. <laughs> so we should explain that both Alex and I, though we are not anti-Bolin, um, we sometimes... <laughs> feel like we've heard enough <laughs> yeah I think it's fair to say that Anne does rather suck the air out of all other conversations of the family okay <laughs> so we're really interested to talk to you about your book and ask you let's start with the origin story what what are the origins of the Bolin family and how do they come to prominence during the late middle ages right well uh let me take you back in time uh, research tells us uh, the first time the Berlins were recorded was in the 1200s. This is with John Berlin, and he is recorded in Washington Abbey Records. This can bring us to the village of Sal in Norfolk, where these Berlins were essentially farmers. But farmers that would become quite wealthy by the 1400s, enough to be recognised in the village church anyway. However, as so many of the story of the Berlins go, things do not always go their way. They are accused of theft quite a few times, and they are even taken to court for ploughing over the border lines to make their lands look bigger. Oh, no, that's that's just not fair on the neighbours. No, it's not really, is it? No. <laughs> but with each generation marrying well, they gained importance in Norfolk, becoming Lord's of uh, the manor of Blicklin. Blicklin, of course, being the suggested birthplace of the famous Tudor siblings of Mary George and Anne Boleyn. <laughs> but as they step higher up the social and political ladder, they gain connections with Cambridge University. They become MPs and they are even able to lend King Henry VI money to fund his wars in France. 
Yeah. With this came roles such as Knight of the Garter, Mayors of London, and Chancellors Followed. This, of course, paved the way for the famous Tudor Berlins. Amazing. So they're social climbers then? Yeah, from the start. (laughs) I think we joke, don't we, about how, like, we're all so tired of hearing about Anne Boleyn on History Hack and Go Team Stuart and all of that. But, I mean, without Anne Boleyn, there is no rise of the Boleyn family. The whole family is tied to her rise. So we have to talk about her, don't we, just briefly before we move on to the cool stuff. Um, So... Talking about Anne, what is her early life like? Because that seems a bit vague and fuzzy. And who is this girl that, like, basically rocks the entire Church of England and turns England on its head? Yeah, it was a little odd to write of this book, knowing that I was writing of the Berlin family. And yet, if you look at the context page, I've only dedicated a chapter to Anne. Um, But essentially, Anne is behind the whole book as a... um, a comparison to her whole sister's story. Uh, As the question to who Anne Boleyn was, I think this is a very fixed question, and I'm not sure we will fully know the answer to it. Uh, This is because we don't know how much of what was written of her at the time and after was true. Did the writers have their own agenda, for example? Similarly, we don't know how much of Anne, Anne showed to other people. She was trained at a very young age of how to act, how to behave, when to act. She was sent to the French court. She mixed with powerful people such as Margaret of Austria and King Francis I. She was around the Renaissance and all the intelligence that could bring. She may have even met Leonardo da Vinci at one point. All this could have given her a platform to build a role for herself, perhaps even hiding behind this role at times. If it was a role, she may well have not expected to play it for as long as she did, hence why on occasions her mask seems to slip a little. One occasion which really gets to me, and I do feel sorry for Anne, is mm. when she is taken to the tower as a prisoner. It is purported that Anne asked whether she would be taken to the dungeons, but she also asked for her dad. I think this is important for two reasons. Firstly, at this point, we with hindsight have built up such an image of Anne. She is witty, she is a force of nature, she is intelligent, she is graceful. Um, She is in her 30s at this point, give or take. She is a mother and she is the Queen of England. And yet when fear takes over, when she suddenly realises where she is, she's in the tower, she asks for her dad like a child scared. Secondly, it's interesting to me that she asks for her dad, the man that put her on the role of how to act, how to put the Tudor courtly mask on. Perhaps this is because in this moment, Anne doesn't know how to act. Does she be herself or does she be the role she has given herself? She recovers soon well afterwards with the trial and the speech on the scaffold. Mm -hmm. It has all the intelligence and grace that seems to suit the Anne we feel we know. But in that previous moment, her mask seems to slip a little. And maybe, just maybe, I think the true Anne may be on show at that point. We will probably never know the true Anne Boleyn. It's a little like, and bear with me with this comparison, it's a little like the Jack the Ripper case of 1888, which I've also written about. We will never fully know who Jack the Ripper was, because when we strip away everything, the facts, the suggestions, we are left with the same problem. We were not there at the time. 
so Jack the Ripper can be anyone we want him to be, hence why there's over 150 suspects. With Anne, it's similar. When we strip away all the facts and the suggestions, we are left with the same problem. We weren't there at the time to know the real Anne Boleyn. So Anne can be anyone we want Anne to be, whether that be the fixing or the innocent. And that can be a positive, because if Anne can be anybody, we will constantly be interested in her. She will constantly intrigue us. She will constantly be written about, and so her memory is kept alive. We will never forget Amber then, even if we don't know her personally. That's that's absolutely fascinating. To be honest with you, Amanda, you've you've actually succeeded in in telling me something that I think I've never heard about Amberlyn before. Really? Um, that's her asking for her dad, which is fascinating. I think you you're totally you've hit the nail on the head there. The fact that she's she is fascinating in that she's unknowable. Um, and that's that's why she gets written about so much. Um, let's talk about the the sort of flip side of that coin. Let's talk about the other Bolin girl, Mary Bolin. Um, there's a there's a sort of I don't know if it's apocryphal, but we often say you know, what we actually know about Mary Bolin could be written on the back of a postage stamp. There's quite a bit of conjecture about her life. And about her relationship with the king, isn't there? What what do we know about Mary? Yes, um, it is quite suggested that uh, Mary Boleyn is a mistress to kings. And in fact, it's probably the second most common thing said about her after, of course, saying that she's Anna's sister. Uh, hopefully this book will change that as there's so much more to learn of Mary Boleyn. Um, we do not have much information to suggest that Mary was the mistress to King Francis I. However, we do have slightly more information to suggest she may have been the mistress to King Henry VIII. Uh, This comes in the wording of Henry's dispensation that he uses to annul his marriage with Catherine of Aragon. In it, there is a slight hint to a previous relationship that could have been with Mary. However, it's important to stress that the Berlins are not mentioned by name in this document. Also, it's suggested for a conversation that is recorded six or seven years after the event uh, that Henry has a conversation with Sir George Frogmorton, in which Sir George, I think quite boldly, says to the king, it's been rumoured that you have been with Anne's mother and Anne's sister. That's quite bold of him, really. Scandal. (laughs) Apparently, Henry is caught off guard and he quickly responds with never with the mother (laughs) (laughs) um by the end of an episode of Hollyoaks it it does sound like it doesn't it (laughs) um this I think can be taken two ways um it's naturally assumed that the king of England is caught of guard so he would naturally say the truth so never with the mother could literally be Henry saying yes he's been with Mary um but also, I think we've got to think this is Henry VIII. Um, he's caught of guard. He is pushed into a corner that he doesn't want to be in. Does he dismiss the truth first? It's an interesting thing to think about. Um, and also, we have the concept of was if there was a relationship with Mary, was it as known then as it is today? Um, We could imagine that if it was known at the time, um, 
Catherine of Aragon might have hinted at this in the divorce trials at Bratfires when Henry is going on and on about how he can't stay married to Catherine because she had previously been with his brother. Mm. We would imagine that Catherine might have said, well, Henry, if that's the case, you can't marry Anne Boleyn because you've been with her sister. Um, there is no evidence to suggest that she does this, so it could suggest that it wasn't as known or thought of as important at the time. What is also brought up in this conversation is um, William Carey, um, Mary's husband at the time. It is suggested that he is given gifts and promotions because of what Mary's doing with the king. However, I do think we're we're giving William a bit of a bad stick with that one because it's quite possible that he could have gained the gifts and promotions off his own back. Also, what is not often mentioned is the fact that William is related to the king and he's related to the king through the king's grandmother, which he adored. So there's many other reasons why he would have gained promotions that may have had nothing to do with Mary at all. So it is possible that she had a relationship with Henry. It is likely when we try to discover why Anne behaves the way she does in the first stages of her courtship with Henry, but we can't be sure. It's fascinating, isn't it, to try and pick it apart when you don't have everything. But like, so... This book is about moving the, the story of the family on beyond the Tudors, which is why it's so interesting to us. So how do we make the jump to the Devereux? So there's a lot of mythology about Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, isn't there, in the Elizabethan court. So how much truth is in those stories? Yeah, um, Robert is a very interesting character. Um, in certain ways, he reminds me a little of Anne Boleyn, um, which is ironic because his mother reminds me of Mary Boleyn. Um <laughs> Robert and Anne obviously have similar endings, but it's the way in which Robert and Anne dealt with a problem that gets to me. Uh, They both seem to go running at the problem head on, a bit like a wrecking ball, perhaps thinking that they could get themselves out of trouble by their wits alone. Whereas Robert's mother and Mary seem to chip away at a problem, ask for something, then back away, ask for something again and then back away from court. The most famous example of this and of Robert's boyish luck, charm and confidence was when Robert was the deputy of Ireland. He is given orders by Queen Elizabeth I to go over to Ireland and attack it, basically. Uh, Robert dismisses these orders, which is not the first time he does this. Um, And what he chooses to do ends up weakening his army. So by the time he comes face to face with his original order, he chooses, well, to have a handshake rather than to fight. Queen Elizabeth is furious, as one might imagine. Uh, This is not what she wants. It's, in fact, the opposite of what she wants. Um, And she's losing patience with her favourite. So she bans him from returning to England. Robert's misguided confidence means that he also dismisses this order too and returns to England thinking that if the Queen sees him face to face, all will be well. So he bursts into Queen Elizabeth's rooms at Nonsuch while she's getting ready. At this point, the Queen believes she's losing her looks. So we can imagine she's not best pleased with seeing her favourite, seeing her without her wig and makeup on. 
this is really the start of the downfall of Robert, who um, whose ending ends with the death at a tower. <clears throat> it's hard to pinpoint exactly where he gets this underlying confidence from. Could it be his mother and the Berlin family? Possible. Could it be from his patron, Robert Dudley? Dudley certainly had confidence with Queen Elizabeth I. However, his confidence could have come from the history they both shared. This young Robert, however, didn't have this history with this Queen to fall back on. And perhaps not understanding this was also his downfall. Wow. I mean... This this is where it all starts to get completely fascinating. You've got a family and they're moving down through the generations that we've we've done now with all things Tudor. The family then moves down further and I'm coming into my wheelhouse now, Amanda. I'm in my happy place. Um, (laughs) They end up like lots of other families with members on both sides of the Civil War. Famously, we've got Robert Devereux III, now Earl of Essex, He's for Parliament, and we can talk loads about him. Please do. Um, But William Seymour, he has a very interesting time, doesn't he? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yes, um, in, in fact, William Seymour is quite an intriguing character within himself. Um, it's it will. It would have been quite easy for me to have written a book purely on him with his interesting tales. Um, in fact, I even have an old cigarette card of him uh, escaping the Tower of London. One of only a handful of people that managed to do this and live long enough to tell the tale. Yeah. But sadly, the same could not be said for his first wife, however. But later in his life, um, his role within the Civil War was really quite unique as he managed to change sides and survive. Originally, William went against King Charles I, um, signing his name to the Petition of Rights, uh-huh. taking away some of the power from King Charles I, who was able to issue false loans and imprison anyone that couldn't pay up. Obviously, something they wanted to stop. <laughs> um, however, William soon changed sides to stand with the king. The king then awarded William with his eventual loyalty by making him a marquis, by making him a privy councillor, and also the governor to the future King Charles II. William is with the king when eventually the civil war breaks out. And although William is ordered to return back to London by Parliament, William uh, chooses to stay with the king at York. This loyalty gave William a new title of the Lieutenant General of the King's Army. 
But this also meant that when things turned really bad for the kin, and the kin is imprisoned in Hampton Court Palace, a nice place to be imprisoned by, mm-hmm. uh, William stays with the king. It's here that he is the king's advisor, and he's also tending to the king. So we can imagine what relationship they built up. William did not change sides, even when the country beheaded their own monarch. He was the planner behind the king's funeral, and he was also the pallbearer at uh, the funeral at Windsor Castle. And he, I mean, he's he's an interesting character because he he keeps his head down. That's what I find interesting about about always handy to do. He keeps keeps his head down throughout the whole interregnum. Stays in the country. Doesn't go off. Um, he doesn't go off on the continent, and effectively waits it out until the restoration in 1660, and Charles II gives him all his stuff back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He actually says quite often that he knows it's going to happen. He's just waiting for it to happen. Oh, incredible! <laughs> and then just to just to touch on the flip side before we move on, so that people know. Um, We've got the Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux, third Earl of Essex, and he is at the beginning of the the Civil War. He's basically one of the big commanders of the Parliamentarian Army. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing how this family kind of spreads into so many other families and now they're almost against each other in the Civil War. Mm. It is really fascinating. So let's move on further through the years um, till we get to Richard Boyle. There's there's a lot of statesmen and courtiers, but he seems to have broken from this and pursued other passions, doesn't he? Yes, I I really quite liked researching Richard Boyle. This might be because I quite like historical buildings. It's full of art and history combined. And plus, if buildings could talk, what stories they would tell. So to write of an architect that had built many buildings we know today was a real treat for me. Um, Richard actually starts his life loving music, but slowly after visiting to uh, places like Venice, which I'm very jealous about, mm-hmm. uh, the architecture takes over his life and he's behind the buildings of Cheswick House, Burlington House, even Westminster School. Uh, beating many famous architects to the punch in this, like such uh, Christopher Wren. However, when the possible chance to rebuild the House of the Parliament came, his ideas were not accepted, which, although may have been disappointing to him, with his love of Palladian style, it is hard for us to picture today the very famous Gothic-looking House of the Parliament looking more like the National Gallery, which is what they would have looked like if he had won his commission. Um, it is also interesting that with Richard Boyle being related to the famous Tudor buildings, that these Palladian-style buildings also show us the importance of the family, reaching past the stone castles of the Tower of London or Hever Castle to a, a different time altogether. This is just, I mean, there's just so many incredible people in this family. Uh, let's let's go back to some women. Um, tell us about Charlotte Cavendish, the Marchioness of Hartington. That's a very posh name, isn't it? I love it. I'm I'm halfway there. (laughs) Um, Charlotte becomes the lady of the very famous and beautiful building of Chatsworth House, even though her mother-in-law didn't like the idea. But she she gains it through her marriage. Uh, Not only is this very elegant building now attached to the Berlin family, but it also has connections, believe it or not, to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes in many, many different ways. 
Uh, one way that I like to mention to people is that the house was used a couple of times in the Granada TV show of Jeremy Brett in uh, of Sherlock Holmes, in which Jeremy Brett plays the main role. Quite superbly, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it is through um, Charlotte's son William that we have yet another connection to this family, to Princess Diana, making the Prince of Wales, William, and his brother, Prince Harry, related to Mary Boleyn in a number of different ways. Although Charlotte has a short life, passing away at only 23, uh, through her marriage and her children, she helped to continue the importance of this family tree, especially when you consider her husband would later become Prime Minister of Great Britain. It's mad, isn't it, to think of how far... I, mean, I know that it's a thing, isn't it, online. People are obsessed with, like, doing their family history all the way back to William the Conqueror and seeing, like, how they can link into all these families. But it's just amazing how far they've spread. Um, the Reverend Charles Cavendish Bentick's life is tinged with tragedy, isn't it? It really is. Um, sadly, like so many of the Billings, their love lives don't really end in happiness. Um, with Charles, the story of his first wife is really quite, quite heartbreaking in many ways. Uh, Charles meets Sunita when he is 19 and he's studying at Oxford University. Sunita was the daughter of a gypsy mother and a father who was a horse dealer. So she wasn't considered to be on the same social level as Charles, who was training to have a career in the church. But like so many of his family members before him, social status doesn't seem to affect him and he falls head over heels in love with Sunita. He quickly proposes to her, even though they had kept their relationship quiet from Charles's family. The, re- the wedding took place at um, St George's Church in Hanover Square and it would seem life, albeit a secret one, was set with Sunita soon becoming pregnant and giving birth to their first child soon afterwards. However, this was the start of terrible times for the couple, as the child sadly dies young. Then Sunita's father is put into an asylum and dies. She becomes pregnant again and loses that child, all the while she is living under her maiden name, never telling a single soul that she's married. But still, she tries to be the best wife she can be when her husband occasionally visits her in London. And sadly, in her eyes, to fit in with her husband's social circles, Sunita takes the drastic step in using lead-based makeup to hide her toned skin. With hindsight, we know that this could be harmful to her health, as well as possibly the health of her unborn child as Sunita was pregnant again. After gaining his BA at Oxford, Charles thinks now is the time to tell his family of his secret marriage. This does not go down well and he is disinherited, I suppose in similar ways to how Mary Boleyn is when she announces her second marriage and pregnancy. History so often repeats. Uh, Also sadly, Sunita loses her third child. Although the couple seem to manage to survive on Charles's career in the church, finding parishes that don't seem to mind that Charles is married, at this point, Sunita is showing signs that she wasn't well. Sadly, again, her symptoms could have given the couple some hope that she was pregnant again, as the, she was having pains in her lower half, she was being sick, and although she was losing weight, her stomach was growing. 
However, this was not a sign of another pregnancy. It was a sign of a disease that forms plaque around the intestines, blocking the arteries. Mm-hmm. Sunita would pass away in February 1850. They had only been married for 11 years and gone through all this. A very tragic story indeed. Isn't time condensed in in those those sort of times before? Yeah. yeah all of that done in 11 years, that's insane. Okay, let's... Let's let's move away from away from tragedy because that is tragic on so many levels. Um, let's talk about lovely Elizabeth II. Um, she's a descendant of the Bolins and uh, back on the throne, which you kind of feel like Uncle Norfolk would would love. Um, how how did this happen? Well, this is one of the reasons why history intrigues me. Um, it can so often repeat and and be so in tune with itself. The normal textbooks of the Berlin family centre around Anne Berlin, like you say, um, for obvious reasons. She is the star of the family. She gave the family their biggest rise, but also their biggest value. But the Berlins would have one final hurrah in Queen Elizabeth I. And so Anne's Berlin's blood was well spent. That's what is normally written. However, with Mary's story, she literally gives us the same thing, albeit it does take a lot longer. She literally gives us a Queen Elizabeth. But whereas Anne's Elizabeth ends, it ends Anne's story, it ends Elizabeth's story, it ends the Tudor story. With Mary's Elizabeth, the story continues into King Charles III, into his children, into his children's children. So the bloodline of the Berlins on the throne continues because of Mary. I find it fascinating that these two Queen Elizabeths share not only share the same name and blood, but they share the fact that they were never thought that they would ever be queen. Uh, with Elizabeth I, there was many Tudors that stood in her way. She was one time a princess, another time a bastard. She was one time a, a loyal sister, and then she was cast as a traitor. She was placed in and out of succession. It must have come as some shock when Elizabeth was finally told that she would be Queen of England. With Queen Elizabeth II, however, she was never meant to be queen. She spent the first ten years of her life never knowing that she would sit on the throne. Then suddenly her uncle abdicates, her father is King George VI, and she is his heir. History can certainly surprise us researchers, but we can imagine it would surprise the people within it too. (laughs) (laughs) Got to ask as well, so... You have obviously made a massive in-depth study of the Boleyn family and their descendants with so many stories. Um, which is the one that has really caught your eye at, or tugged at your heartstrings? This is an interesting one. I I think I have to be true to myself and answer this one, even though we do talk about the Boleyns quite a lot. Um, for anyone that knows me, my answer is... Probably an easy one. Um, I am very much Team Mary Berlin, so I'm going to talk about her for a bit longer. Um, It's so easy to look at Mary's story using descriptive words such as weak, quiet, sister, mistress. With a famously signing star such as Anne Berlin, Mary can become just a footnote in her sister's story. However, Mary can be so much more than that if we take the time to find her. It can be easy to compare the sisters within. There were times when they were similar and times when they were not. 
But with this book, I wanted to do something more than that, more than compare their personalities and their relationships alone. I wanted to compare their stories. Their personalities can be shown within their life stories. Anne, of course, was a force of nature. She knew what she wanted and certainly went after it. (laughs) There is almost a sense of speed to her, certainly when compared to her sister anyway. The speed of Anne is reflected in her story. However, with Mary, it seems a little slower. She would ultimately gain what she wanted, like her sister, but it would take a lot longer. However, Mary survived. It's because of Mary's survival that we have this much longer story of the Berlin family wives to tell. She's the reason why we meet so many fascinating characters throughout the years, which you've kindly allowed me to talk about. Um, and she is the reason behind the book and her inspirational story, the ultimate story that maybe we shouldn't judge quite once, for they might ultimately surprise us, is the reason I just had to write of her. And of course, the, the one descendant we've not discussed today, Amanda, for anyone who's seen the Who Do You Think You Are episode, we haven't talked about the comedian Josh Widdicombe, who um, also... No, found... I should have added him in, shouldn't I? <laughs> Who also found out that he was descent from Mary Bono, which was just fantastic telly. Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a fascinating story um, spanning an awful amount of time. Um, the book, The Bolins from the Tudors to the Windsors, is available now. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. <laughs> 